perfect. That was perfect. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 9, please. A couple of things first before we get to the teaching. As Vicki alluded to, we lost one of our bright and shining lights, Leslie Jingozi and Phonus went into the presence of the Lord. She was already in the presence of the Lord, but she went into the immediate presence of the Lord on August 26th after a battle with cancer. And we didn't get a chance to, or I, I didn't announce it because there were some things connected with the celebration of life that required reservations, and we were a little too late on that, but we had a representation there. Leslie was just a, as I said, a bright and shining light. She grew up in this ministry. And our love and condolences, of course, go out to Ken and Pat Phonus. Some of you know them. They used to come in on a motorcycle or two motorcycles. And we uh, extend our love and condolences to them and her three sisters, her daughters, her family. And when she found out that the time was inevitable and that she only had a, a few weeks left, she said, according to Ken, yay, I'm going to heaven. So she was very happy about that. And she also had a favorite verse, when I am tried, I shall come forth like gold. And she surely did. So we'll certainly miss Leslie. Secondly, my wife Pam can't be with us today and she's been spending time with her mom and my mom and with her Aunt Linda recently and asked, she said, I don't want to abuse this privilege but can I ask for prayer for the immediate family? And I said, sure. And she wants us to pray first for her mom who is diagnosed with AFib and congestive heart failure. Um, she's been in the hospital, but she's back home now. And Aunt Linda, I always tell Aunt Linda, I'm not gonna call her Aunt Linda because she's too young, but she has AML blood cancer and it's a pretty serious situation. So we wanna add these. We hope that you'll add your prayers to ours as we add our prayers to yours and there are many, many that we're praying for now in terms of beseeching God for his healing grace. And for the many of you that have close relatives or you yourselves are going through health situations, we're praying for you also. And so asking to add your prayers. We do that because we have confidence in God and we also have confidence in the efficacious power of your prayers and so let's pray father we do thank you for the opportunity of approaching the throne of grace corporately together and for joining the faith of many in prayer expecting answers that will bring about thanksgiving from many we do pray for Pam's mom and mine for Carol Henry and for Linda Bucci, that you will administer your healing grace, your restorative grace, your kindness, your mercy to help from the throne of grace for both of them. 
And we also pray, Father, for really the many in Tetelestai Phalanx and their extended families that are going through similar situations with health and with surgeries. We have the command, but also the pleasure of praying for them. We're praying for a pouring out of your healing grace, O Father, God of all grace, for those whom we're praying for. Some of us have right on our mind now the faces of those we're praying for. And we beseech you for mercy to help in these times of need. And we thank you for the privilege of approaching your throne. What a glorious privilege it is to have access provided by the blood of Christ, which we're going to consider today. And we also pray that you'll open our hearts to receive a message of extraordinary importance and that you will fill this room with your glory and each heart with your glory, the glory of your Son. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. An additional prayer also for Pastor Craig Brown. There's Ken and Pat. Good to see you. We just talked about you guys. We love you. Also... Pastor Craig Brown will be speaking in about 40 minutes in Vermont Baptist Church. And we pray that, Father, that you will be with him in the preparation, the last moments of preparation, the presentation, and the aftermath of this message. And we ask it in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. This message, in many ways, has been a long time coming and is probably among the very few most significant messages I could proclaim from Hebrews and teach from this heavenly homily. And I've been working on it for some time. You'll notice that during the midweek services, we've been requiring or putting up messages as a kind of a second hearing of messages from the past. Part of the reason for that is I think you really need to hear those messages again. But the other part is I really have to have much more time in the preparation of messages for Sunday morning because there's a lot more going into these. And I won't say trust me because I don't like it when people say that because I don't trust anybody except the Lord. No, that's not true. But I, I, you, you may believe me that a lot is going into these messages. Today I'm going to be speaking on poured out versus sprinkled blood. Poured out versus sprinkled blood. There is a distinction, and we want to bring about by the sword of the word and by the Holy Spirit the distinction and the differentiation of consciousness with regard to these things. And we're going to make a lot of progress in this realm. The poured out versus the sprinkled blood. And I may even have to get a little bit into the Greek with this because for one thing, and I'm emphatic about this, there are some things you cannot bring forth from the Word of God in terms of doctrinal accuracy without the original languages. It's impossible. No matter how well you think you know the English translation or if you know 92 of them, there is, it is impossible to get to the accuracy 
that's required for the message of the gospel apart from the original languages. Secondly, with regard to that, Hebrews quotes the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament. That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. There are several Greek translations. The most famous is called the Septuagint because it was put together by 70 scholars in Alexandria of Egypt for the Egyptian-speaking, or the Greek-speaking, rather, Jews in Egypt in the first or second century BC. And so that's the overwhelmingly used translation that's quoted in the entire New Testament and almost exclusively, except for some minor adaptations in Hebrews. The Septuagint translation is very much superior to the point where I would almost say extraordinarily superior to what is called the Masoretic text of the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew text or the Tanakh. The Tanakh or the Masoretic Hebrew Bible was developed somewhere between the 7th and 10th centuries AD, long after the destruction of Jerusalem, there came into being a Judaism, which is not the Judaism of the Old Testament. It's rabbinic Judaism. And there are certain Jewish believers that consider the rabbis and the rabbinical scholars to be the modern Pharisees. They don't like passages like Isaiah 53 because it speaks of Jesus, the Messiah, and there are many inaccuracies that I've found over the years in the Masoretic text, which are not in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures. There's a reason why it's quoted exclusively, almost, in Hebrews and throughout by Paul, by Jesus himself. He knew of that translation, even though he spoke Aramaic, he knew of the Greek Septuagint, which was developed in the first or second centuries BC before his birth. And so that's very important. Let me give you an example for that, of that because in Genesis chapter four, verse 13, where we're gonna be going fairly soon because of Abel and Abel's blood and the blood of his sacrifices. Your translation in the English, if it is from the Hebrew text, it probably says when Cain spoke to God, he said, my punishment is too great to bear. And the Septuagint has this, my guilt is too great to forgive. And I would say that that's the most accurate. My guilt is too great to forgive. That's the kind of thing that people follow Cain in today. Oh, I don't wanna follow Jesus and my sins are too great to forgive. My the things I've done, I, he can't forgive those. It's actually an excuse because there is no sin and there is no guilt. It cannot be purged and purified by what we're going to see, the sprinkled blood of Jesus Christ. And so there's a, there is a shining example of the Septuagint and its distinction from the Hebrew text, the Masoretic text, which is filled with inaccuracies. And so you're going to see today that there are some Greek terms that we need to get into in order to make our distinction, in order to make an accuracy of doctrine, in order to rightly divide the word of truth, in order to wield the sword of the word in some very fine cuts today. And to do that, 
we're going to consider several Greek words. If I don't put them up here today, they will be in print for you, and they'll be in the notes. But what I want to do beginning is Hebrews 9. I want to put this in context. Our key verse is going to be 9.22 today. 9.22. That's a very important verse, Hebrews 9. But I'm going to put it within the context of the whole chapter, and I'm going to read this chapter as I've translated it, minus a lot of bracketed commentary. Hebrews 9.1. Now, indeed, the first covenant had associated with it regulations for service in a cosmic sanctuary. A tent was furnished, the first compartment of which was called the holies, in which was both the lampstand and the table of the presentation of the loaves. Behind the second curtain was a section called the Holy of Holies, having the golden altar and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, which held the golden jar of manna, the rod of Aaron that sprouted, and the tablets of the covenant. And above the ark, the winged living beings called the cherubim of glory, overshadowing that place of expiation, about which things it is not necessary to speak in detail right now. These things being prepared just so, into the first room of the tent, the priests kept entering all the time, performing their service. But into the second compartment, once a year, only the archpriest goes, never without blood which he offers in behalf of himself and for the sins committed in ignorance by the people. Verse 8, by this the Holy Spirit is making clear that not yet disclosed is the road to the Holy of Holies while the first tent has standing. This is a symbolic representation for the present time in which both gifts and offerings are being offered. This was still going on in the time of the writing of this epistle, in the time of the preaching of this homily. There were still ongoing offerings of the Old Testament kind, and the audience that he was writing to were tempted to go back to them, as we've expressed many times. So verse 9 again, this is a symbolic representation for the present time. That's their present time, in which... Both gifts and offerings are being offered which are not able to complete. Hebrews is all about completion. The word is teleao here. The consciousness of the worshiper. Having to do only with foods and drinks and various ritual washings. Regulations involving the body imposed until the time of the correction. That's the new order. The correction actually began with the death of Christ. Verse 11, now the Messiah has come as an archpriest of good things that have come and are coming with the greater and more complete tent, not made by human hands, that is, not of this earthly sphere of creation. He entered once and for all through the sanctuary, not with the blood of bulls and calves or goats and calves, but by his own blood or with his own blood, literally, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a young cow sprinkling, and that word I will look at, sprinkling is rantizo, and it looks like this in the Greek, it's R-A-N-T-I-Z-O, rantizo. And that's a word that means to sprinkle or in a larger sense to manipulate to sprinkle or to manipulate. 
And so it says, if the blood of bulls and goats and ashes of a young cow sprinkling those who were defiled sanctifies to the purification of the flesh, and it surely does, then how much more will the blood of Christ, now since we're speaking of sprinkled blood here, rantizo, we're speaking of sprinkled blood, then sprinkled blood is what this means, and I would even put that in brackets. How much more will the sprinkled blood of Christ, and that is with which he entered the Holy of Holies, that is not of this earthly creation, who offered himself without blemish to God. Without blemish indicates that he's the lamb, the paschal lamb. Through the eternal spirit, purify the consciousness from dead works to serve the living God. So please notice the sprinkled blood is related to purification of the consciousness. And then in verse 15, he has what is nowhere else in any of the Testaments, in either of the Testaments, an analogy between the covenant and the will and testament, a will and testament. And he says, because of this, he is the mediator of a new covenant, and now he brings in a will and testament. He said that a death, please notice that death here is related to blood on another level, that, that a death has taken place for redemption. There's another key Greek word, apolutrosin, A-P-O-L-U-T-R-O-S-I-N, apolutrosin, a very important word. It means redemption, but it's equal to another word, aphesin, which is forgiveness, related to the Greek verb aphiemi, which means to cancel guilt and to cancel penalty, to release from the burden of something, to forgive, and repentance is not required. This is God's doing. Apolutrosin is redemption, which is equal to the forgiveness of sins, and that's been accomplished for all the human race, as we're going to see. Something not brought up in Hebrews' commentaries, which we're majoring on. So let's look at it again, starting at verse 15, to provide context for 9.22. Because of this, he is the mediator of a new covenant. And that a death has taken place for redemption of transgressions committed under the first covenant means that those who are called may receive the fulfillment of the promise of an everlasting inheritance. The inheritance is related to the will and testament, and the death of the one who made that testament, being Jesus Christ, releases the inheritance to come to the called. Now, if you want to get fancy with this, and I will get fancy with it, the called are everybody, because as the scripture says, as many as he foreknew, those he called, and as many as he called, he justified, and as many as he justified, he glorified, and he justified all in Romans 5.18 compared with Romans 8.30, so the called are all, and that's ultimately the universal salvation, universal redemption, but that's a, I don't want to major on that because people will walk out. Because of this, he is, the, not really, he is the mediator of a new covenant, that a death has taken place for redemption of transgressions committed under the first covenant means that those who are called may receive the fulfillment of the promise of an everlasting inheritance for a will to take effect. Now he's balancing the word will with covenant. 
the death of the maker of the will, that's the testator, must be established or proven. For a will goes into effect only when people die. Now we showed that the proof of the death of the testator was provided by John who saw blood and water emerge or proceed from the side of Jesus Christ who was pierced with the javelin of the Roman soldier that was present there. His chest cavity where his heart was pierced, out came blood and water which is evidence of the death of the testator. There was a whole crowd of things happening. There's a crowd of insights in John 19:31 and up through 36. In fact, starting at 28, there's a crowd of insights. They're crowded in in that passage like no other passage of the Bible. And twice we have in that passage the word tetelestai, which I've named this church after that word and this phalanx after that word. So again, in verse 17, for a will goes into effect only when people die. So as a covenant goes into effect when blood is shed or poured out, so a will and testament goes into effect when a death can be evidenced or proven, and that is proven by the blood of Jesus Christ. We might say physiological blood that emerged from his side. He was and is Yahweh pierced. They shall look upon him whom they have pierced, also quoted in John 19, 37 and 38, found also in Revelation 1, 7, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. He is Yahweh pierced, Yahweh pierced. And he is the maker of the will who died, and he is the lamb slain to make effective by his blood the new covenant. So again, let's pick up at 17. For a will goes into effect only when people die since it is never in force when the maker of the will is still alive. In this same vein, that's my play on words, the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. A testament doesn't go into force without the death of the testator. A covenant doesn't go into force without the pouring out of the blood of the sacrifice, the required sacrifice in this case, Jesus Christ. So let's follow verse 19, a new paragraph. When every commandment of the law had been articulated by Moses, this law came by Moses. He spoke all the commandments of the law. When they had been articulated by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and of he goats, should be supplied in that translation, with water, just as blood and water came out of the side of Jesus Christ, in John 19:34, Moses took the blood of calves with water and with an applicator of scarlet and wool and hyssop, sprinkled both the scroll of the law itself and all the people. This is a hint at universal application of the blood. While saying, in verse 20, this is the blood of the covenant which God ordained for you. Jesus actually echoed these words in Matthew 26, 28, when he said this, speaking of the cup of the fruit of the vine, he said this represents my blood of the covenant, which is poured out. He doesn't say sprinkled there. He says poured out for the forgiveness of the sins of many. 
poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And this matches up with Matthew 20, 28, calling himself the Son of Man. He said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Not to be ministered to, but to minister. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Paul interpreted the many as all, as I've said probably a hundred times from this pulpit in 1 Timothy 2.6. He gave his life as a ransom for all. So therefore, there are times when the pouring out of the blood of Jesus Christ is equal to the giving of his life over to death, the pouring out of his life into death, the death of the cross. And so it is metaphorical there and not literal, as we're going to see. So in verse 21, in the same way Moses also sprinkled the tent, there's the sprinkling again, and all the vessels used in worship with blood. Verse 22, here's our key verse today. Indeed, according to the law, almost everything was purified by blood. That's the sprinkled blood now, purified. Sprinkled blood relates to purification. And without the pouring out of blood... That's a different thing. The pouring out of blood, and that's a word that's going to take me about a half hour to write. Oh, only kidding. It's a hard breathing, so it's ha, H-A-I, accent there, M-A-T-E-K-C-H-U-S-I, plan ahead, a S. Haima tecusas. Haima tecusias. And that means the pouring out of blood. It's related to this word here. You have to see this. Seeing this in the Greek is literally like looking into under the ark. It's like, wow. This this actually knocked my brain into another gear here, but it's ek. Keo. That's a word that means to pour forth. It never means to sprinkle, ever. It always means to pour. For example, in Romans 5 5, the Holy Spirit is poured out in our hearts. He's not sprinkled in our hearts, He's poured out in our hearts. Same word is used for He was poured out on all flesh. The Holy Spirit will be poured out on all flesh. When the Spirit is poured out, He evokes faith in those upon whom He's poured. Therefore, when He poured out on all flesh, Faith will be evoked in all of humanity, all flesh, ekkeo. So that's the heart of that word means to pour out. Haima is blood, H-A-I-M-A. That means blood. So it's a pouring out of blood. It's very simple when you translate it. So notice this verse. Indeed, according to the law, almost everything was purified by blood. And without the pouring out of blood, there is no forgiveness. That's a principle that takes place not just for the law, but for the new covenant. So with the pouring out of blood of Jesus, all sins have been forgiven. For Jesus is the expiation for the sins of the whole world. Expiation means removal. The removal of the sins of the whole world. In 1 John 2, 1 and 2, that's very clear. Where there is forgiveness of these... 
sins, that's all the sins of the whole world, there is no need for any other offering for sin. Now, coming up, I'm going to show you that for God, forgiving sins is forgetting sins. And that's going to be very important. The problem is that people talk about it all the time because there seems to be an overwhelming amount of dementia occurring, both in young and old people in our time, for reasons that may be related to recent events. But the problem is people can't remember things. And I think there's an equal problem where we can't forget things. There's two problems. I can't remember. I can't forget. Can't you forget your sins? Can't you forget the things that you've done that cause guilt? That's a bigger problem than forgetting or not remembering. And so God forgets. God forgives and God forgets. That's coming up, though. Where there is forgiveness of these as Hebrews is going to conclude this section in 10.18, there's no need for any other offering for sin. That's the whole argument this guy is making, this homilist is making. I can't wait to meet the guy. He is saying to them, why would you go back into a system of sacrifices because one sacrifice has been made? And they'll say, yeah, but these sacrifices, we remember that when we went there and went through that ritual, we did feel kind of good for a little bit. It didn't cleanse us completely. It didn't cleanse our conscience completely, but it made us feel a little good, a little better for a little bit of time. And he says, well, why would you do that if once and for all a sacrifice and an offering has been made, which has the power through the sprinkled blood in heaven, the perpetual heavenly blood of Jesus, to completely and perpetually cleanse your conscience so that you never have to repeat those things again? That's the whole argument that's being made here, and he does it in a very exorbitant way here. Now, I only had to look at Gingrich for this. He's one of the best of the lexicographers. He's, and it, just bear with me on this. Gingrich, as well as many other lexicons, describe this word ekeo. Let's keep that right here, ekeo. And it means to pour out, to shed and to spill. There's no way that you can translate this as sprinkle or to hand manipulate in any way like the priest had to manipulate it, like Moses manipulated the blood of the, that was poured out. It had to be poured out before it was sprinkled. There's a, sec, a separation between the pouring out and the sprinkling. This is going to solve, incidentally, and resolve a conflict that caused a great division in among believers that we were involved with, I was involved with, a, a, an affiliation I was involved with several years ago. This resolves the conflict of it, and I'm glad I'm able to do that before I go into the immediate presence of the Lord. Where there is forgiveness of these, there's no more need of a sacrifice. The pouring out means to shed, to spill, or pour out. Now, I looked up several of these things. This is another reason why I've had to put Wednesday into a second listening of some of the older message. In 1 Kings, which is third reigns in the Septuagint translation, 1828 of 1 Kings, the priests of Baal were very frustrated. 
because Elijah was mocking them. He says, where's your God? Is he on vacation? Is he in the restroom? Is, oh, I don't see him present in this. And so they began to cry out. It says, in fact, in 1 Kings 18.28, which is third reigns, that's what it's called in the Septuagint, they were calling out with a loud voice, as was their custom. They were cutting themselves deeply. That means they were making deep gashes of self-mutilation with daggers and lances until the blood gushed out. Guess what word is used in the Septuagint? Ekkuo, ekkeo here. E-C-H-E-O, ekkeo. And so, obviously, we get a very picturesque signification of this. And, of course, it didn't bring any results. The blood gushed out of deep cuts. It was not sprinkled. The word is used in Matthew 9.17, where Jesus used the word ekkeo and said, wine is poured out of wineskins. It's poured out, not sprinkled out. You don't sprinkle wine unless you're a very stingy host. You pour it. And so the word is ekkeo. It is wine poured out, not sprinkled. In Matthew 23:35, which is a very significant verse in our study today, the blood of righteous martyrs, Jesus talked about, from A to Z, Abel to Zechariah, from Abel to Zechariah. God didn't charge Cain with Abel's murder. He charged the Pharisees and scribes that murdered Jesus with the blood of Cain, as we're going to see in some regards. In Matthew 25, the blood of righteous martyrs from Abel to Zechariah being poured out, ekkeo, same word here, ekkeo. And you'll see the various forms of this word in the Greek in the print, printouts. The blood of righteous martyrs from Abel to Zechariah was poured out. It refers to the violent action of their homicide, murder by religious types that began with Cain, a religious man who made an offering from the fruits of the earth that God did not accept, and Abel made an offering of a lamb from the firstborn or from the firstlings of the flock. And therefore, he must have made, we assume, he made an offering of blood and of sprinkled blood. His offering was demonstrated to be acceptable. And in fact, it says that God looked upon it and gazed on it in the Septuagint. Ephorao, it's a very strong word for gazing upon something with, a fa with favorableness. He gazed upon Cain's with favor. Some people think that he may have sent fire down to consume the sacrifice to show his dramatic approval. Some think that it was more of an inner witness, but Cain knew that his was not accepted. And because of jealousy, because of envy, he killed his brother. And so the blood of Abel, all the way to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, and Jesus said to his generation, whom you murdered, and this is so ironic, between the temple and the altar, between your sanctuary 
your holy sanctuary, and your holy altar, you murdered a prophet of God, a righteous man. And then he was saying, all the blood that was poured out on the earth, another word used, epitase geis, upon the earth. And again, we go back to Genesis 4, when God said to Cain, the blood of your brother Abel cries out to me from the earth. The earth. There's another blood that cries out from heaven. We'll talk about that in a minute. Speaks better things than that of Abel. Now, follow this because it's very intricate, but it's kind of fun to make this case. So, all the righteous martyrs from Abel to Zechariah poured out on the earth will be accounted for by this generation. In other words, what they're going to do to the righteous Jesus Christ is equal to all the blood that's ever been shed of prophets and righteous people, righteous men and women since the time of Abel. The accountability, the culpability, and that will be demonstrated in what he predicts that happens, which is the judgment on the temple in Jerusalem in A.D. 70. That's because of the culpability of the murder of the Messiah, the righteous one, Jesus Christ, who at the same time is the propitiation for the sins of the people who murdered him. Judgment resulting in salvation. All of God's judgments are judgments unto salvation. The point is, blood was poured out, not sprinkled by the martyrs. In Revelation 16:6, John speaks likewise of those who poured out, not sprinkled, but ekkeo, not manipulated, not sprinkled, but poured out of those called the blood of the saints and the prophets. In Revelation 16:6, the indictment is against those who poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets. Again, a prediction of the destruction of Babylon, also known as the Old Jerusalem. Here we get closer to the subject. Mark 14, 24, Jesus speaks of the blood of the covenant, his own blood being poured out, poured out, ekeo, for many, that means all, not sprinkled, poured out, poured out. In Matthew 26, 28, Matthew is a little closer, I think, to Hebrews in language. But Matthew 26, 28, my blood of the covenant, tohima, the blood which is poured out, ekeo, for many, for the forgiveness of sins. That's afesen, for the forgiveness of sins poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Without the pouring out of blood, there is no forgiveness. This is my blood of the covenant poured out. And he actually said it in the present, which is being poured out for the forgiveness of sins of the many, meaning all. And so, poured out, not sprinkled, in Luke 22:20, 20, 
This is the cup of the new covenant. The word new is added. So a complete picture is brought together from Mark, Matthew, and Luke, the synoptics. They're called synoptic because you see them together. They present a complete picture. Luke 22, 20. This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is being poured out. Ekeo. For you. Huper human. For you. For us. Pronobus not sprinkled. So you see the distinction here is not sprinkled, but poured out. There's a distinction being made between the poured out blood and the sprinkled blood. I began this distinction last week. Similarly, to illustrate the point more forcefully so that I can make this case once and for all, in John 2.15, in the purification of the temple in old Jerusalem, Jesus poured out this was a violent act, poured out, the aristactive indicative form of the word ekeo, the coins of the money changers. He took the treasure chests of coins and he just poured them out. And he kicked over the tables and he made a whip and he drove out the money changers and those who were collecting funds for an insurrection against Rome. He kicked them out. He cleansed the temple. This was a forecast, a speech act of what was going to happen in A.D. 70. He poured out all the coins of the money changers. He didn't sprinkle them. He didn't take a few coins and sprinkle them. He poured them out. That's the same word, ekeo. In a graphic image in Acts 1.18, using the same verb, Judas Iscariot's guts poured out when he committed suicide. And still again, the verb ekeo is deployed in the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, who is said to be plentifully poured out in Titus 3.6, and poured out ekeo, not sprinkled on all flesh, Acts 2.17, Joel 2.28, which is the Septuagint, Joel 3.1. Getting the point? Poured out, not sprinkled. I'm saying that because recent studies have said that the word that we are looking at here, haimatekousias, refers to sprinkling. When I say, no, it doesn't, it refers to pouring out, and therefore there's a distinction made here. So in Jude 1.11, one more, ekeo means to give oneself up or to abandon oneself in a negative sense. He's speaking of Sodom and Gomorrah and the giving up or abandoning oneself, abandoning all moral restraint, all ethical restraints, something that's going on in our country today, giving up or abandoning oneself. In this case, it's a negative. And the abandoning of oneself is the pouring out of oneself in all kinds of immorality or arrogance or self-glorification or a lot of other things. And this is used, it's, it's telling because the word pouring out is metaphorical in this sense for a self-giving, but not the self-giving of love, but the self-giving over for selfish pleasure. And so the word abandoning oneself, not selfless self-giving, like Jesus' self-giving and his sacrifice for us, but in the selfish abandonment of oneself for illicit pleasure. That's what Jude 1.11 says for ekeo. Contrast this with the pouring out 
this pouring out. Contrast the word pouring out with the blood of sprinkling. Now, the blood of sprinkling in the Greek text looks like this. It's H-A-I-M-A-T, I, which is, again, the, it's, it's a uh, word for the blood. Haimati, I'll just do it down here. H-A-I-M-A-T-I, Haimati, then Rantizo again, R-A-N-T-I-Z-O. Hamati Rantizo. That's obviously the sprinkling of blood rather than the pouring out of blood. The sprinkling of blood, not the pouring out of blood. We're going to deal with the sprinkling of blood now. The blood of sprinkling is that which we have come to already in Hebrews 12, 24. You have not come to Mount Sinai. That's where the old covenant was announced and Inaugurated. You have not come to Mount Sinai, to a burning mountain, to fearfulness, where Moses even feared and quaked, where even if an animal touched that mountain, they'd be pierced with an arrow or killed. No, you've come rather to Mount Zion, the heavenly Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, it says, to the spirits of the just justified made perfect or complete, to God, the judge of all, and we've made the point that the judge of all justifies all, and that's why he's related to the spirits of the justified. The spirits of the justified and the judge who judges by justifying. And you've come to Jesus, the mediator of a better covenant, a new covenant. In fact, the word neos is used there. Brian did an excellent word study on neos as opposed to kainos. Kainos means new in quality. Neos means ever new, always youthful, ever fresh, always having the characteristic of freshness and youth and vigor. A new covenant, the blood of a new covenant, and you have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling. There is a sample of blood in the heavens. There is a sample of blood in the heavenly New Jerusalem. It isn't all the blood that was in Jesus' veins, as the old-time scholars used to try to say in their bizarre renderings. It is, however, a perpetual heavenly sprinkled blood in the holy of holies of heaven, which Jesus went into heaven with. Now, I'm saying that as if I'm dogmatic about it, because maybe I am. You've come to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better things than that of Abel. Now, that's where it gets tricky, and I'm going to just advance a little bit on that. So look at Hebrews 12, 24. So we contrast the blood that's poured out with the blood of sprinkling, haimati rantismu. The sprinkled blood of Jesus to which we have come in approaching the heavenly Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, innumerable angels, it says, in a festal gathering that includes the spirits of justified people made complete, God, the judge of all, who, as we've explained, is the justifier of all, and therefore we've already come to a place where all of humanity has already been justified and glorified. That's in the eyes of God, the mind of God. That's the eternal perspective. And we've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new, ever-fresh 
covenant, not a covenant that is old and vanishing and now vanished away in Hebrews 8.13, but a new and ever fresh, ever young, forever young, like Rod Stewart saying, forever young now. That's the covenant. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks better things, paraton abel, paraton abel, better than Abel. Better, kraton, a, a word used 13 times in Hebrews, better things than that of Abel. Para ton Abel. Better than the blood of Abel. This argues for the blood of sprinkling of Abel. The blood that Abel sprinkled when he slew the lamb. You see, the connection between Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and sprinkled blood makes an obvious connection to Abel and the offering of the lamb that he brought. But just like the lambs that were brought by the priests of the Levitical order, the lamb brought by Abel and the blood poured out and then sprinkled by Abel is not... It's inferior to the blood of Jesus that he poured out and that he sprinkled himself in the heavenlies. And that's why, if you look at Hebrews 12.25, this is fascinating. It's mind-boggling where it says, If we gave attention to he who spoke on earth, how much more should we speak, listen to him who speaks from heaven? So there's a heavenly, earthly thing going on here too, which is there's just so much insight crowded in here that it's, almost mind-boggling. To sort it out is, is quite the challenge. The sprinkled blood of Jesus then speaks better things than that of Abel, which if you say that of Abel, then you have to speak of the sprinkled blood of Abel, the blood that he sprinkled, not the blood that was poured out of Abel. Now before you think, oh wait a minute, that's against what I believe, let me say this. I believe both are being said here. I think this is one of the most ingenious double entendres because Abel also had blood in his body that was poured out in death. Jesus had blood in his body that was poured out in death. Jesus' death is far more significant than Abel's death. Therefore, Jesus, the very blood of Jesus, the righteous one, is, speaks better than the blood of Abel, a righteous and innocent saint slain by murder and homicide. There's another sense where Jesus was also the victim of homicide, but he said, no man takes my life from me. The people that voted for his crucifixion were homicidal, and they were guilty of homicide because it was in their intent. But nobody could kill Jesus. He would only lay down his life, and he laid down his life at the behest of his father. So we can't say ultimately that he was murdered because he laid his life down. So we contrast the poured out blood with the blood of sprinkling. Again, let me say this. The sprinkled blood of Jesus speaks better things than that of Abel. That what? That sprinkled blood by Abel. The blood that Jesus sprinkled is better than the blood that Abel sprinkled after he made a sacrifice of the firstborn prototokos of the flock. And he used the word prototokos there in the Septuagint. So this argues for the blood of sprinkling of Abel from his sacrifices from the firstlings of the flock. 
This also fits in squarely with all of the sacrifices made by the Levitical priests and by the archpriest who once a year on Yom Kippur went into the Holy of Holies, not with his own blood, but with the blood of others, the blood of other sacrifices, which he sprinkled against the mercy seat on the altar, having to do with the ark once a year. And so this, again, brings that argument into a crescendo with Abel. So the blood of sprinkling of Abel from the sacrifices of the firstlings, firstlings of the flock, rather than the blood of Abel, that was poured out on the ground is being argued for here. And that's the result of his murder by Cain. Genesis 4.4 in the Septuagint translation, the Greek, also argues for the blood of the sacrifices sprinkled by Abel. Because it says God gazed upon here. The word gazed upon is a very strong word. It's, it's like the word we see Jesus, harao, only this has a prefix in front of it that intensifies it. And you'll just see it in print. F harao, E-P-H-O-R-A-O, Genesis 4-4, Septuagint Greek. It says that God looked upon or gazed upon the gifts, plural, of Abel. It's also found in Hebrews 11.4 showing that the pastor teacher used the Septuagint of Genesis 4, not the Hebrew text. You can also find this word for gifts in Hebrews 5.1, 8.3, and 9.9, along with thusias, which means sacrifice. Let me back up slightly to get the picture here. God gazed upon the sacrifice made by Abel. So he gazed upon the blood that Abel shed in the lamb, of the lamb. God gazed upon his gifts, his sacrifices, and he approved of them because they were made in anticipation of the blood of Jesus, which speaks better things than the blood of lambs and rams and bullocks and goats being offered. And so the whole epistle comes into a crescendo here. However, we have to look at this now. What God gazed upon and what God heard are two different things. In Genesis 4.10, God said to Cain, what, after saying, what have you done? Where's your brother? And Cain said, am I my brother's keeper? The most famous question uttered by human lips. In Genesis 4.10, God said to Cain, the voice of your brother's blood. The voice. Remember Hebrews 12.25, right after 24, talks about a voice crying on earth and a voice crying in heaven. How much more the voice that cries from heaven. Genesis 4.10, God said to Cain, the voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the earth. God gazed upon the blood that Abel shed. God heard the voice of the blood that Cain shed of Abel. Now, either way you slice this, if you want to say the blood of Abel is the blood that poured out of him when Cain killed him, and if you want to talk about the blood sprinkled by 
Abel after he slew the firstlings of the, of the flock. Either way, the blood of Jesus speaks better things than the blood that Abel spilled and was poured out from Abel and the blood that he sprinkled of the lambs that he sacrificed. They're both, they both work. Although the sprinkling works a little bit, it has a little more heavier emphasis here. And we're not done with that because we haven't gotten to Hebrews 12, 24 and exegesis yet. The reason I'm slow with this is I think this might be one of the last things I do. And so if I do it really slow, God will let me live longer. So that's my reasoning. How do you like that? Self-preservation. Terrible. No, that's never mind. So this has reference to the blood, Haima, that's H-A-I-M-A, Haima, of righteous Abel. The blood that God heard is like a crime scene investigation, like DNA investigation. The blood that he heard speaking to him from the earth, the earth literally, literally the ground, became evidence of a homicide. It became evidence of a righteous man being killed. And so blood poured out is speaking of the blood of righteous Abel in Matthew 23, 35. There Jesus is speaking clearly of the righteous blood shed of a righteous man, an innocent man, Abel. He's the first martyr. And then he goes all the way to Z with Zechariah, but he... Abel is, Abel's blood in Matthew 23, 35 is blood poured out of Abel when he was murdered. The blood that Abel applied to the altar of his sacrifice was the blood of lambs or the firstborn of the flock. So Matthew 23, 35 goes back to Genesis 4.10 and it refers to the blood of righteous Abel which was poured out at Keo, again, E-K-C-H-E-O, at Keo, poured out, for which the scribes and the Pharisees of Jesus' day were culpable. Upon this generation shall come all the blood of the righteous ones that were murdered from Abel to Zechariah, whom you guys killed so piously between your temple and your altar, both of which are going down in A.D. 70. The blood of Abel in Matthew 23, 35 is the blood of the righteous man, Abel, the voice of which cried out to God from the earth. And so note here the word for earth, taste, gaze, is used in Matthew 23, 35, and Jesus is actually alluding to Genesis 4:10 from the Septuagint here. Taste, gaze. That's where the blood is and where it speaks where it spoke to God. There is a blood in heaven that speaks to God. It's sprinkled blood, but before it was sprinkled, it had to be poured out. There is no sprinkling of blood for purification unless there's pouring out of blood for forgiveness. Now, you're going to have to listen to this tape ten times, so I'm not going to try to explain it over and over again. And we don't have tapes. I know, I'm old. 
So in any case, with Abel, we have a gesture toward the distinction between his poured out blood and a violent death by homicide. Poured out. In contrast with the blood of the sacrifices from the firstborn of his sheep. Apoton pro tototon ton probaton. That's the phrase. From the firstborn of his flock. That the blood of sprinkling of Jesus refers also to his righteous blood poured out as well as sprinkled. It's the same blood, but it has two functions. The poured out blood has the function of satisfying what was required for the reconciliation of the world to God. Let me say that again. The poured out blood of Jesus Christ does speak, in fact, metaphorically of his life poured out in death, which was that which satisfied and the only thing that could ever have satisfied for the reconciliation of the world to God. God made peace by the blood of his cross, the blood of his cross refers to the poured out blood first, then to the sprinkled blood. When he went into the heavenly holy of holies, it was with his own blood which he sprinkled. Now you say, is that a manner of speaking or did he actually do that? Well, I'm not going to say either way. But either way, the sprinkled blood is meaningful. It seems, if you translate these things, that there actually is, according to, as according to Joshua Bloor, who wrote his doctoral thesis on it in 2021 and published it in 2023, that he actually did go into the heavens with his own incorruptible blood, a sample of it. Now, the old guys used to say, like Bengal and other people say, there's not a bit of blood that was left in Jesus' veins. He took it all in this big coffer and put it in heaven. That's not necessary, and it's actually kind of weird. But there is a sample of sprinkled blood in the heavenly Jerusalem that you can see with your own eyes when you get there is patently clear to me. And it is the blood sprinkled that purifies the conscience. The poured out blood was for the forgiveness of sins, and that means for redemption. That means for the propitiation of the sins of the whole world. But the sprinkled blood is so that you never have to do another sacrifice. You never have to do a thing called penance, which is blasphemous. You never have to do something good to cancel out the bad thing you did because you think the guilt that you have is too great to be forgiven. When you say, with Cain, my guilt is too great to be forgiven, you're saying Jesus' sacrifice and poured out blood is not enough to clear me of the guilt for the things that I've done, or let's do it better than that because we're self-righteous, or to clear the guilt of so-and-so in history who killed thousands of people. It can't do that. The blood of Jesus Christ Christ isn't enough to clear the guilt of the worst sinners in history. Can't do it. So there's some people that just have to go to hell. Well, I won't say this to the people who teach that, but I'll say this to the doctrine. Go to hell. In closing, you see, this is what I go through. I'm, I'm giving you an example of the torture I go through in my study. 
you say, well, it'd be better if you just give us the baby. You don't have to go through the birth process in front of us. Well, maybe not, but I'm humbling myself. I'm humbling myself in front of you to show you the torture that I go through in my Gethsemane, which is my study. My study is my Gethsemane. And so this is the process. You say, you actually think these things through like, yeah, I do. I have to. And if you don't do it in the original, you haven't got it. I don't care how much you know of the English text of your Bible. You don't find out these things apart from the original languages. It's impossible. It's impossible. So, now, for the last seconds here, I want to do this. I know this is long. I know you're hungry. I know you, some of you, may actually consider the necessary food that you eat greater than the food of the word of God and the bread from heaven, but too bad. I haven't eaten anything yet, so I don't eat breakfast. So I can be an example for you, and I won't eat until after one, so hang in there and tough it out with me. The blood of sprinkling of Jesus refers also to his righteous blood. The blood of sprinkling of Jesus refers also to his righteous blood poured out on earth, but sprinkled in heaven. That which is sprinkled in heaven serves to purify the conscience, the consciousness. Our understanding of the doctrine of the purifying blood that's sprinkled gives us a pure, con it actually helps us to have hemardiological amnesia, to forget the things we're supposed to forget, to forget the traumatic things that we're supposed to forget, the guilt that we're supposed to relinquish and release, be released from. So the blood, Jesus' blood was poured out on earth. It's called the cross, Mount Golgotha, on the hill of the skull. But it was sprinkled, manipulated by himself, that is, the eternal priest in heaven. This too is significant because in the very next verse in Hebrews 12, 25, a contrast between him who spoke a warning on earth and he who speaks a warning from heaven. And earth versus heaven contrast is something we're going to deal with down the road. So I have to leave room here for the possibility that in Hebrews 12, 24, and we haven't gotten there yet in our exegesis, may be an ingenious double entendre, that is, a double intended doctrine, where the pastor teacher acknowledges and accentuates both the poured out blood of Jesus, which the Father regards as sufficient for the forgiveness of the sins of many, that's all, with the poured out blood of Abel, which is the witness of an innocent victim, and the sprinkled blood of Abel's sacrifice, which God gazed upon with satisfaction, but even with a greater satisfaction did he gaze upon the blood of Jesus Christ and gazes now upon the sprinkled blood of Jesus Christ, which keeps him forgetting your sins and purifies your consciousness from dead works. Hebrews 12, 24, therefore, 
is crowded with insights, just like John 19, 28 to 38 is crowded with the insights provided by blood and water that proceeded from Jesus' pierced side and his identification as the Passover lamb, as well as his identity as Yahweh whom they have pierced, which is also his identity of the Son of Man in Daniel 7, 13 to 14. A lot of crowded insights there. So the blood of Jesus is not sprinkled literally on our consciousness, but it is arguably sprinkled literally in the heavenly Jerusalem on the heavenly Mount Zion. The blood of Jesus sprinkled in heaven serves to completely and perpetually, not partially and momentarily, purify the consciousness. So Joshua Bluer, I think, whom Dan has been corresponding with, Dan Santilli's been corresponding with, and he's been answering, correctly refers to this as the perpetual heavenly blood of Jesus. The perpetual heavenly blood of Jesus. So I say something is missing if we relegate or restrict or limit blood, the blood of Jesus, merely and solely to the metaphorical. Something's missing if we do that. Just as something is surely missing, if we can find the meaning of Jesus' blood solely to the physiological. So, Hebrews 9.22 really brings forth this whole distinction. Without the pouring out of blood, haimatekousias, there is no subsequent sprinkling of blood, haimati rantismu, and therefore neither forgiveness of sins or purification of the consciousness, and therefore homardiological amnesia or forgetfulness of sin. So for now, I would say that Hebrews 9.22, let's focus there, enumerates or shows both the sprinkling and the pouring out of blood in that one verse. This is how you rightly divide the word of truth. In that one verse, the first part, 922a, says what? Indeed, according to the law, almost everything was purified by blood. Notice it, purified, katharizo, by blood. And that denotes sprinkling. Sprinkling is always related to purification because it speaks of almost everything being purified with blood under the law. The second half of the verse, 922b, and without the pouring out of blood, haima tekusias, the key word today, without the pouring out of blood, there is no forgiveness. And that speaks of the pouring out of the blood which may, we may exactly equate with the death of the sacrifice and the death of Jesus, or his life poured out to death, as Barth put it. So the, blood of, the poured out blood is metaphorical for the poured out life of Jesus in death, which is the only thing that could ever been the price to be paid, the victory won, and the satisfaction to be gained by the, for the reconciliation of the world to God, the God of peace. 
Here, then, is the distinction between the pouring out and the sprinkling of blood. I see no reason that the Hebrew's author departs from the usual sense of the pouring out of blood with this word, haimatekousias. Pouring out creates forgiveness of sins. Sprinkling brings about purification of the consciousness from sins, ultimately from guilt, from the very memory that torments and gives us post-traumatic stress. So that we cannot say with Cain, none of us can say with Cain, none of us, I don't care what we've done, how many times we've done it, none of us can say with Cain, my guilt is too great to be forgiven. You realize how many people have psychological terrible problems because of that same thing? My guilt is too great to be forgiven. You know what the cure for that psychological terror is? finding out how great the sacrifice was that removes it. So what have I done here? Proposed a resolution to the controversy about the blood of Christ. I don't know if some of you remember being around when that whole thing hit the fan, when the sewage hit the impeller. Figurative versus literal. I emphasize the figurative and the literalist's abandoned fellowship with me. I emphasize the literal and the figurativists abandoned their fellowship with me. It was, a, it was quite a time. So this is resolving it. Because where the blood of Jesus Christ is said to be the agent or means of bringing about of universal reconciliation, as in Colossians 1.20, or of justification and salvation from wrath, as Romans 5.9, or the forgiveness of sins, as Matthew 26.28 and Ephesians 1.7, blood is clearly a metaphor for Jesus' life poured out in sacrificial death, the judgment of the judge as the judged for all, the death of the priest in representation of all as the once and for all sacrifice and offering. But where the incorruptible, physiological, perpetual heavenly blood of Jesus is referred to, it is the sprinkled blood. It is shown to be, one, the evidence along with water of the death of the testator, and two, the presence of a sample of his blood in the New Jerusalem, the ever-purifying agent, which has both purified the heavens, as we're going to see next time in Hebrews 9.23, and the consciousness of worshipers. This blood of sprinkling to which we have come, as we've come to Mount Zion in the heavenly Jerusalem, need not be a container containing all the blood of Jesus that was once in his veins, as averred by Bengal and others, which appalled people like Robert Anderson and others. So we have a double differentiation of consciousness going on here. I know this is long today, but this is the most important message I've, I've taught or preached on, maybe ever, because of the, the subject matter and because of the distinction. We've made a double differentiation of consciousness here, noting both a distinction between the poured out and the sprinkled blood of Jesus Christ our Lord, and we have reconciled the controversy between the so-called literal and figurative blood of Christ. The poured out blood of Jesus is his life poured out in death, the death of the cross, the death of the cross, and it is that which made satisfaction 
which God looked upon with satisfaction for eternal redemption and for the reconciliation of the world to God. The sprinkled blood of Jesus is that which satisfies for the complete and perpetual purification 